Let's pray together in worship because we can, because of our Lord Jesus Christ, because we ought to, because we know how much we need God. So let's pray. Lord of heaven and earth, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. We have no good apart from you. In your faithfulness and grace, Lord, be our comfort and rest. Be our strength and our song. May the meditations of our hearts and therefore the words particularly of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. God, we pray that you will take the truth of your word And as our good shepherd, use it to change us, use it to lead us and guide us and guard us, Lord. We ask that from your word, we would be fed in your green pastures. Help us with our sin. Convict us, Lord, help us in our suffering, comfort us, Lord, help us in our complacency to refocus our lives on who you are and what it is that you have for us. In all these things, God, teach us to depend on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 13 We are close to the the end of that chapter. We'll begin this morning with just a brief review of other things we've seen in Acts chapter 13. We've, and then even all of Acts, we've noted in the past that what might be the most tricky thing about understanding and applying Acts to our own lives is determining what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Said another way, what specific details are unique to their apostolic ministry in the earliest days of the New Covenant Church, and what things are patterns and examples that we can and should follow as Christ's church in the 21st century? So we interpret and apply Acts with that balance and nuance in mind, which corresponds to our emphasis last week, even as we looked more closely at at quotations that Paul uses from the the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and how he uses them in connection with one another and to describe their fulfillment in Christ. So we applied this handling of the word to the way that we should interpret scripture, and therefore also to the way that we should use scripture in our evangelism and in our teaching. To that end, we highlighted three key things that might help us to know what God is saying and to have confidence to say what God says. We talked about the context of the particular passage. Within the whole canon of Scripture, that's the second thing. And thirdly, with an eye on the centrality of Christ in the message of God's Word. Because we ourselves cannot be the apostles or the New Testament authors, we should cling even more closely to this pattern. Again, they are, what we say God means must have roots in the original context. What we say God means must 
hang together with other scripture, and what we say God means must account for the Christocentric message of God's word. The previous week before that, our emphasis, we, we took the whole missionary message that Paul preached on this occasion. We talked about the pattern of Paul's evangelistic approach as a means to evaluate and improve our own gospel proclamation. So we said, in evangelism, we should take care to know our audience as best we can. Because although the overall message of salvation is the same, the presentation is impacted by what the person knows and doesn't know, what the person believes and doesn't believe. Secondly, we emphasized from God's word that we should rehearse the narrative of scripture to give appropriate context for who God is and and who we are and why Jesus came. Paul was talking to people who feared God, and we know that at times we are talking to people who do not yet fear God. The narrative of Scripture reveals God's initiative, His faithfulness, His holiness, His choosing, His promises, while also showing man's sin and depravity, showing man's dependence, man's need. It teaches us to fear God and to see our need for him, and it reveals Jesus as the only solution. Thirdly, we said that we should be as specific and complete as we can about the person and work of Christ, his life, his ministry, his sacrifice, and his resurrection. And that includes explaining why all of that was necessary and everything that has happened since then being precisely because Jesus is who God says that he is. The change in your own heart and life is because Jesus is exactly who God says he is. And then number four, from beginning to end, the truth of God's own word is our primary tool in evangelism. So we should memorize it, summarize it, and quote it. Consider having the person you're witnessing to read the words themselves from the Bible. When we use the scriptures, we are letting God speak to them for himself. And finally, we also pointed out two weeks ago, whether it takes multiple opportunities over time or, or if we only have one shot, our goal must be to put a choice before our hearers to accept or reject Christ. Invite them to make a decision whether to accept or reject Jesus as the only Lord. We don't try to manipulate that response because we can't do the Holy Spirit's work that only God can do, but we must aim to faithfully and clearly proclaim the gospel and present that God requires a response. Now, when we proclaim the gospel faithfully, I'm going to show you why this connects to today. When we proclaim the gospel faithfully, there could be a range of potential reactions to the gospel People, there may be a range of, of reactions. You can think of some of them. I, I just wrote down a few. We might have a re, re, get a reaction of indifference to sharing the gospel. Okay, that's good for you, but you might get a reaction of enthusiasm, curiosity. Tell me more. You might get confusion like, I don't get it. You might be contradicted. You might even get hostility. Or you might get sincere repentance and acceptance to Jesus as Lord. 
This mix of possible reactions might lead us to wonder how we ought to respond to these things. What, how, what do we do when someone reacts like this or like this? Let's look at how Paul and Barnabas handle the various reactions to their gospel proclamation in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. Acts chapter 13, verses 42 to 52. Read with me there. I do encourage you, if you can, have your Bibles open, even as I continue trying to expound the text, because I'll follow along with what happens in here. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, in this case, the Jews meaning the Jewish leaders of the synagogue, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul, what was spoken by Paul, even reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, though, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So here was another reaction. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Verse 50, another reaction. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off of their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples there, the ones left in Pisidian Antioch, were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. True to chapter 13, as I've been saying, Luke establishing the patterns of this first missionary endeavor, the author provides the reader with another couple of patterns. There is a continuing trend of broad Jewish rejection and even hostility. This isn't unanimous among all Jews. Some do respond to Christ, but the overall pattern is similar to what Christ himself experienced. Juxtaposed to this, then, is an increasing focus on and evidence of Gentile inclusion in the people of God through faith in Christ. This continues to happen more and more, and it's an important emphasis in Acts. Now, against that backdrop, the text gives us a sampling of common reactions to evangelism and how these missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, respond to each reaction. So from the example of Paul and Barnabas in Pisidian Antioch, how might we respond to the ways that others react to the gospel? The first one is, I, I'll put it to us as a question, how might we respond to initial enthusiasm to gospel proclamation? Thousands are gathered Many are raising their hands, you know, in our context. Many are raising their hands. Many are coming forward. And that some of the enthusiasm might be curious interest, popular attention, even an initial following. 
What makes me conclude from the text that there was some significant enthusiasm here? The people begged, earnestly asked for them to come back again and keep talking about these things the following Sabbath. And many Jews and devout converts, which is proselytes to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city was there. That's pretty enthusiastic. That's a, a quite an initial reception to the message, the word of God's fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But how do we respond if something similar were to occur with us when we faithfully do what God has called us to and proclaim the gospel? It could be with many people. It could be with an individual who responds initially with enthusiasm. I'm going to argue that what Paul and Barnabas do here in this situation is, is what I'm calling with cautious optimism. What's most obvious in the text is that they urge continuation in the grace of God. We're optimistic, but cautious cautiously optimistic, and we urge people to continue in the grace of God. Let me explain. In, in, in the Greek here, the word continue, prosmeno, means to remain, urging them to remain, to stay with, to keep on, to continue on. The idea is to remain firm and steadfast in one's association with someone or something. You say you want Jesus, keep on. Theologically, we would agree, we would argue agreement with the following statement John, John MacArthur makes about this verse. Those who are truly saved persevere and validate the reality of their salvation by continuing in the grace of God. There is indeed a risk that people could respond with intellectual assent or emotional enthusiasm. Our brain might comprehend the truths of the gospel, but our hearts might not submit to the Lord Jesus as God's only means for us to be restored to him. We might get excited at the prospect of Jesus changing everything kind of language or be emotionally caught up in the apparent revival in the hearts of others all around us, but we might not be utterly convinced that without Jesus' atoning death and resurrection life, I am as far from God and I am as far from being good as I can possibly be. So we keep on proclaiming truth like Christ commanded. When Christ gave them the Great Commission, he said, Go, making disciples as you are going and baptizing them, and he said, and teaching them everything that I've commanded you, Matthew 28, 20. So in the process of doing this, the false ones will be made known because they will fall away under testing. Jesus explained this to his disciples about the parable of the sower, that some only respond initially in this shallow way. Listen especially for the second soil type. I'll read again Jesus' explanation for all of them. Luke 8, verses 11 to 15. Now the parable is this, he told his disciples when they asked to have, get some more clarity. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. When the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, very shallow, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing, they fall away. Then listen to the next one too, which is similar. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear 
But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. But there's also this. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, by God's grace, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So we're cautiously optimistic because we know God changes people, even as he has made us alive in him. But we urge those who claim faith to continue in the grace of God. Will the newborn Christian be almost immediately galloping like a same-day colt? Even a little bit clumsily, but colts walk and run the same day. Christians aren't likely to do that so quite so impressively. But will the reborn bear the marks of the new birth? Yes, absolutely. Especially in time. Now, this popular attraction in, in the context we're looking at, go back to the verses there. There's a popular attraction to what Paul and Barnabas are saying, their message of Christ. And so that sparks another reaction. And we ask, how might we respond if there's jealous opposition to the gospel proclamation? The Jews are jealous because they, they saw the crowds. They saw the crowds. You're familiar with this reaction, right? Somebody else is getting attention, and we respond with jealousy, even envy, wishing evil upon them. There's a jealous reaction. What if people start following them and listening to them more than they're listening to us? What if we lose our place? It's jealousy. So they... They start both contradicting Paul and slandering him. You, you know these days we call that the logical fallacy of ad hominem, attacking the person, but that never stops people from doing it, right? We're entering another political season. Oh, goodness, will there be a lot of slandering of the person? We're familiar that this happens all the time. We do it in arguments with one another we just impugn someone's character, <laughs> often unfairly. So what if we experience others contradicting the gospel, which we know is God's truth, including for them, even resorting to reviling us? Well, you might feel like you'd appreciate it if it could happen for you like it did. Remember, go back to the beginning of chapter 13, what happened to Elamis, the magician on Cyprus? When he was contradicting Paul, he, he was blind for a time. Or maybe you have this in your spirit to feel a bit like the ones Jesus called the sons of thunder, James and John, who want to call down fire from heaven to consume Christ's detractors. So as a normal practice, we do not aim to be like the sons of thunder. <laughs> Instead, we should do what Paul and Barnabas did here. With bold confidence in God, we can confirm what is true, and we can clarify our calling in Christ. Their bold confidence is based in God, not in themselves, and they confirm the truth with quite a lot of courage, and they also confirm their calling in Christ. 
The first part of their response is, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. God's salvation not only comes through Israel, but it is offered to them first as well. That's what Romans 1.16 says, for the Jew first and then also for the Greek. That's why but Paul is not ashamed of the gospel of God. The Jews are nearest in proximity to the gospel of Jesus Christ in every way. Although it is sad, Paul and Barnabas boldly point out that their hearers are rejecting God's salvation, and they emphasize their responsibility for such. Because you push it away, you thrust it aside, that's rejecting it. And you consider yourselves not worthy of eternal life. Ouch! You're thrusting aside God's means of eternal life. You think of yourself as not worthy. That's confirming the hard truth. In our historical context, we may proclaim Christ with people who are are near in the sense of, of having lived their whole lives in the Bible Belt. Or we might be speaking to someone who's, who's near in the sense of they've actually fellowshiped in churches. Or maybe even they're growing up in solid Christian homes. Sound familiar? <laughs> in such situations, how might we confirm the truth for ourselves and for others when, when they seem to, when they seem to, to be more about opposing God's word than submitting to him. If you reject Christ, you might say or respond this way, if you reject Christ, I will love you still because I have Christ in me and because this is not about me. But out of love, I can tell you also what is the result of your rejection. I can warn you about the outcome, and I can warn you that you may not have other opportunities for repentance. Behold, indeed, they say, look, we are turning to the Gentiles. This can't be understood as Paul saying they'll no longer preach to Jews because they continue to do that. They do that in each new place. He had also already preached to the Gentiles before this, so What does Paul mean? The overall patterns remain the point. If we need to respond in a similar manner to this, it it allows a person to see why you might need to redirect your efforts because of their rejection. Have you experienced conversations with someone that you're trying to witness to, and they keep wanting to talk about anything other than the main point of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even attacking you, and you you begin to ask yourself in sincerity if you need to invest your energies somewhere else. Again, from the love of Christ in me, I can also be honest with you and say that your stubborn resistance leads me to the conclusion that I would be wise to invest more gospel energy elsewhere with others. I love you and I will pray for you and and maybe in God's providence, I will be available to you again. But for now, I'm moving on. 
By doing this, we are confirming what is true as well as confirming our calling in Christ. To reinforce their calling in Christ, Paul quotes Isaiah 49, verse 6. It's there in verse uh, 47, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul puts their missionary calling in the context of what Israel's responsibility was as God's unique, uniquely chosen people group. Paul now applies that to the church and to their ministry in particular, corresponding to Christ's command and his explanation to Paul himself at his conversion after being blinded on the road to Damascus and then meeting with Ananias and, and being told, I'll show you not only how much you're going to suffer for my sake, but that you will be a unique light to the Gentiles. We too understand our calling in Christ extends beyond our temporal, physical comfort, and we commit ourselves to be Christ's instruments so that some of us may be sent out to proclaim Christ beyond the boundaries of our church community. There are yet places where the truth of God's revelation of himself and his plan of restoration through Jesus is not near to them in any sense. So we must go to them. We must also begin to see that the increasing secularization around us has led to a greater degree of biblical illiteracy, meaning that people are more distant from understanding God's word and their need for Jesus in our own backyard. So we must approach them accordingly. And there will be some, both in our midst and more distant from God, who will in fact respond to God's offer through Jesus Christ of being made right with him. And that's our next question. How might we respond to sincere reception of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 48 and 49? Even in the midst of some predominant rejection and what would turn out to be hostility, Paul and Barnabas still got to experience the amazing power of God's grace and work through his spirit to save some. Here in Pisidian Antioch, it's especially the Gentiles who hear this great news of, of being invited into God's family through Jesus and who are converted. So these people rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. They're praising God, exalting him for his truth revealed. How might we respond to sincere reception of the Lord Jesus Christ? Try to follow me here with astonishment and admiration for God's work through his word, we worship God. That's how we respond. With astonishment and admir admiration for God's work through his word, we worship God. Let me ask you first, do you know the joy of trusting Christ and being adopted as his child? I am his and he is mine forever. And do you experience the magnitude of appreciation welling up inside you like a tidal wave that boasts in God's magnificence, his glory, and his grace revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ, revealed in his word of truth, revealed to your own soul? And you get to see him and know him. And the more you 
the you know him, the more you realize you long to know him. I know it is true, God, because you have said it, and you have made it real in my own life, and I know this about you. I know this, all of this is about you and not about me, God, but in your grace, you have brought me into that grace. And the text says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, putting their faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Savior, their Lord. Maybe you are one who has come to love the sovereignty of God in salvation, and, and maybe you're enthusiastic about it, the sovereignty of God in salvation, even to the point of being a bit annoying at times. Wink, wink, some of you nudge your husband. Because you know that it's a more accurate reflection of who God is. That's why you love it. That's why you're enthusiastic about it, which is always good and right for our hearts. So you worship God for appointing you to eternal life. Thank you, God. But maybe you're someone who's yet wrestling with the biblical concept of predestination because you feel it's, it's hard to reconcile with God's choosing and your own real experience of, of having a will and being a person who makes choices. I mean, we know that Adam had a choice to obey God and he chose wrongly. And if you want to differentiate that as, as having happened before sin entered the world, ironically, through that choice, then just consider the countless other choices made wrongly and sometimes rightly from the wills of man deciding whether or not they would trust and obey God. Even as believers, we choose to submit to the Spirit and walk in the flesh, or, or, or to walk in the flesh. We choose to submit to the Spirit or to walk in the flesh. We know this freedom that God has given us as human beings is real. So maybe it would help you to know then, as R.C. Sproul explained in his days of ministry about election, God's choosing us, R.C. Sproul explained that God can be sovereign in salvation and yet use the agency of drawing a man in submission to him so that he comes willingly. A woman, a child, comes willingly to God because his God draws us. You're not a robot, but the Bible declares that you are depraved in such a way that you would not come of your own accord. God therefore takes the initiative to put a new spirit within you, drawing you to himself in a, in a way that you will come willingly because he has taken your blindness and given you sight. You know how to have sight of his goodness and grace and glory. So you aren't dragged to Jesus. No, you rush to weep and kneel at his feet in repentant worship. You fly eagerly to embrace him in faith that loves him dearly. I hope you find that understanding somewhat helpful. Ultimately, though, we must remember that we take God at his word and we trust him. We do not trust in our ability to logically explain God. Now, don't get me wrong, God will not be illogical. God cannot be illogical, but you might. <laughs> the problem is in the limits of my logic, not his. As much as I love these things, we must move on. Again, the point is a response of worship because we are, we're floored and overwhelmed with God's character and work through his word. So also, to this point, 
What does the text say was spreading through the whole region? The word of the Lord. The gospel of God fulfilling his promises in Jesus Christ, offering forgiveness of sin and freedom from the righteous requirement of the law. Jesus as the only means to right standing before God. Jesus as the only means of providing right relationship to God. You just stand back in admiration and astonishment at God. who makes the word of Jesus Christ to advance in people's hearts even amidst a raging storm of rejection and hostility. So that leads to our final question about our responses to different reactions when we proclaim the gospel. How might we respond to effective persecution that causes us to move on? This is a Gentile city, so the jealous Jewish leaders get influential Gentiles on their side to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And it sounds to me like the method they used is to get some God-fearing women, which means that, that they would have been proselytes and closely associated with the synagogue. And these are also prominent women. They get these women on their side, and they in turn have influence with the Gentile leading men of the city. This power of a woman doesn't surprise men or women in the audience. I'll refrain from any other jokes or commentary that will get me in further trouble. And this tactic that they use proves effective, and the missionaries are driven out of their district. We ask ourselves, too, about how we should respond if persecution is effective enough that, at at least for a time, we have to move on. We have to go somewhere else. What do we do? We trust God with a clear conscience, and we continue proclaiming the gospel, even entrusting those that we must leave behind into God's care. What do Paul and Barnabas do? (laughs) First, they follow a practice that Jesus gave his disciples during his earthly ministry when he sent them out two by two to go into the cities and towns ahead of where he would be going. If people did not receive them, they were told to shake the dust off of their feet and move on. The reason the missionaries apply it here is because shaking the dust off their feet is symbolic, uh, is a symbolic expression of testimony against them. That's in Luke 9, 5 and Mark 6, 11 in the example that I told you of. Shaking the dust off their feet indicates that That someone has done all that can be done in a situation and therefore carries no further responsibility for it. They're able to have a clear conscience. I have faithfully sought to present Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation to you. And you are pushing us out. And shaking the dust off their feet is in effect saying those who reject God's truth would not be allowed to hinder the furtherance of the gospel. This will not hinder me from continuing to share the gospel to others. Even while shaking the dust off their feet, it must have been exceedingly difficult to leave behind the believers, most of them undoubtedly very recent converts. Look around the room this morning at the people that you call your church family And imagine, some of you I've known a more brief time, and yet I've come to love you so 
dearly because of our communion in Christ. And then to, be, to think of having to leave. It's difficult. And, and especially in a situation where, where most of these people are probably recent converts. I mean, just like I said about the cult, Christians aren't like sea turtles. We don't hatch from an egg and then brave the sand, the treacherous sand, to try to get to the possibly even more treacherous sea for a tiny little sea turtle. No, we nurture and welcome into community these infants in the faith, seeking to see them raised up to maturity alongside the whole community as it grows together in faithfulness to God. Ephesians 4, 12 and 13. Paul and Barnabas would, would have wanted to invest more time in teaching them to see them grow to greater maturity. And perhaps the future would, would yet afford that opportunity to circle back. But they would have to trust God. And they would have, have to pray and, and trust the Lord and, and leave some servant leaders in charge of this young church. So the passage ends, though, on this hopeful and encouraging note, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. They have to go, but they know that the disciples that they leave behind are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. What an encouragement that must have been to these two missionaries to see the faithful fruit of God among these people whom they would have, would have to leave behind so soon. But not too soon, because they trust the providence of God and the care of God for Christ's own church. He's the good shepherd. He will provide and protect. He will be their sufficiency, not Paul and Barnabas. Well, there's no space in this sermon for a lengthy conclusion. And whose fault is that, you ask? Well, mercifully, there's a lack of time for pointing fingers. So we'll wrap up with this overarching thought. As we also face the prospect of gospel proclamation, if we pull these things together, I would just conclude like this and say that we depend on God and we aim to be faithful while trusting God with all of it. We depend on him. He is the good shepherd of these sheep. He is bringing people to himself. His sheep listen to his voice, and they follow him. We're just aiming to be faithful under shepherds, and then we trust him with all of it. We know our frailty. We know our sin. We know our inability. We know our conflict between us. And we just keep trying to grow in being faithful followers to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting that God will complete his promises. Even as the Apostle Paul says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll have the praise team come to lead us in a final song. Father God, we 
trust in you knowing that Jesus said that this would happen, that it wouldn't be all coming up roses, that we would indeed face persecution because in our depraved, sinful hearts, we want to reject Jesus. But we also know that you are faithful and sufficient to bring people to yourself. And so we trust people's souls to be within the scope of your sovereign will. We know that you are good and you are sufficient. We know that we are not good and not sufficient. But you have placed us in right standing, right relationship to you. And so why would we go back to depending on us when we can abide in and depend on you? God, help us to follow the example of Paul and Barnabas. Make us faithful, independent servants. In Christ's name we ask, amen.